Welcome to the teaching ministry of Pastor Deborah Grohler. We pray that you will be blessed and empowered by today's message. Well, as I said, um, I'm really glad that I didn't just verbally say, but put in writing that we're starting Romans, because if I hadn't put it in writing, I just want to give you a little forewarning before we start the chapter tonight that this was much fuller than I had given a week's credit to. Um, so I would really encourage you to take some time and do a little of a Berean work on your own because this is a beautiful and amazing chapter. And in actuality, as we look at the blessing when the 12 sons, we could have taken two or three per week. And that probably wouldn't even be enough just to take the whole Bible into perspective and really show you how the propheticness in some cases has already come to pass. So I'm going to do my best. We did it this morning to conclude the chapter. Actually, we won't conclude it all the way. There's about two verses I left at the end deliberately just so that we have some place to begin next week when we close out chapter 50. So um, hoping to kind of do that next week and then kind of recap the book a little bit and just, it's been a really amazing journey with you, so thank you for the very long journey that it's been, but um, just very worthwhile. It's been really amazing. So, and, and I loved how we, we kind of bookmarked Revelation, and then we went to Genesis, and how interesting those two seemed to, we kind of flip-flopped and went back and forth with them several times. But as you know, we have been on a very messy tour uh, with the messy life of Jacob for some time now. And he is the final patriarch that will give birth to the entire nation of Israel. Amazing. What a, what a mantle he has. And, and here, for the last couple of chapters, we begin to see it, just a launching of his maturity like we have not really seen before. Um, I think I had mentioned uh, in the past that these are his best days as we look in these last few chapters. He is being called Israel more than he's being called Jacob, which tells us a lot, doesn't it? And again, we're seeing, knowing that that name Israel means what? Governed by God. So when we see that, we're, we're coming to understand that as he moves in that name, we're seeing the anointing and the visionariness um, and, the, and, the, and the overriding power of the Holy Spirit moving in his life. And we're seeing that name used more and more all the time. So as we enter chapter 49, um, it's really, as I had mentioned before, it's not a, an end of 48 and a beginning of 49. It's, it's a continuous two chapters. In other words, the scene that we ended with in 48, we now pick up with 49. It's not a few days later or a couple years later. It's a continuous scene that we're taking place. And he's nearing his passing. Um, and he is getting his home in order, if you will, and getting the spiritualness that God wants placed in order also. So he pronounces, as, as you remember our last session, he pronounced a blessing uh, on Joseph's sons, and their names are what? Manasseh and Ephraim. And he declares not only a blessing, but a prophetic blessing over them. And now we, we go ahead and we pick up where the rest of the sons are. Again, because there are continuous two chapters. Now, you know, remember that we talked about the fact that Manasseh and Ephraim, uh, in essence, were adopted by, by Israel. They essentially become sons of Israel and not sons of Joseph anymore. And Joseph kind of gives up his, his, his blessing, if you will, uh, for the two sons that are adopted in. 
But we'll see in this chapter, there's still a blessing for Joseph to be had. And we'll, we'll, we'll certainly get to that when the time comes in this chapter. But there's a few things I want you to notice as we start to, to go through this, just to take a little note and, and look for. Even though Jacob has adopted Joseph's two sons, he is going to remember Joseph. I just mentioned that before we're done this chapter. And why is that? Because Joseph is a picture of Christ. We've seen that. We've seen that parallel all along. And he carries a great prophetic truth because he is that picture of Christ. So we're going to see that displayed here. So we will look at each son. And some of them have a little bit more narrative than others. But we're going to look at each son and the prophetic importance. Again, I can't emphasize enough. There was so much really that could have been really brought to this message today. But for time purposes, we just really don't have it. So all together... Chapter 49, much didn't know this myself, just preparing for this, is really known by, you know, great Bible scholars and theologians and teachers as probably the most important chapter in the entire book of Genesis. So that's a pretty, that's a pretty strong statement to make. So let's start out. We're going to turn over to, to, to that chapter, chapter 49. I think we read the first two verses last week, but I want to go back and just redo them again for those that weren't here then, just so we can get context as we're moving along. Okay? So verses 1 and 2 says, And Jacob called his sons. Well, we already know he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh, right? And said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days? Verse 2 says, gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob. And then immediately before this whole prophetic and blessing word begins, he says, and listen to Israel, your father. So again, preparing you a little bit ahead of this chapter, we know when we see that, that from here on out, he is being governed by God as to what is being said. And we know even more than the name Israel being used, we're going to be able to see through history that what has been said has already happened in so many cases. Some are yet to be seen, but some have already happened. So 14 times, this is the first time we see that word, last days. That's a very familiar word when you think of the New Testament, the New Covenant. We hear that very often, don't we, in the times, especially when you're looking at eschatology. But very rarely in the Old Covenant do we see that. Certainly in the book of Genesis, a book of beginnings, you wouldn't think it would talk about the end of days, right? But here he says, this I'm going to share with you, not only the blessing that's going to come upon you individually, but this end day. And when this wording is used as end days, it's always prophetic. It's always prophetic. The, the English rendition of this particular sentence really is, it obscures the Hebrew meaning. And, and we like to look through at things with Hebrew lenses because it gives us better insight. So in the Hebrew lens, Jacob is saying in the Hebrew this, what will befall Israel in the day's end? So this is not... Uh, again, this is a, a preparatory statement I'm giving you. This is not end days that affects the church. This is not end days. In essence, it does because what happens to Israel has an effect on us. But this prophetic uh, discussion that's going to take place is for Israel. It's for Israel, the sons of Israel, I should say. So that would be exactly what the, the lens of Hebrew would say. It wouldn't just say, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the, in the end days. It would say, what will befall on Israel 
in the days of the end, okay? In other words, what will come to Israel prior to the Messiah establishment of the millennial kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah. So, and some of these things are for then, but, but so many of them we're going to see have already happened, and they were pictures of what we've already read in our Bibles before. So Jacob will speak as a prophet. Obviously, if he's talking about prophetic things, then he is standing in the office of a prophet, isn't he? And that's another thing we're not so used to because we think of a prophet, we think, especially in the Old Covenant, as someone that's called a prophet, you know, Isaiah and Ezekiel and those kinds of people. But the patriarchs had the office and God used them in the office of a prophet before. So he's going to stand in that office and he's going to talk to each member of each tribe, the head of each tribe individually, concerning themselves and the, the prophetic view of the tribe. So there's going to be a blessing over the head of the tribe and then also with the tribe's dimension is going to be going forward, okay? And it will, it will come to each son, and it will also speak to a degree of the chronological days of Israel, what happened in their story, okay? That's the kind of things we're going we're gonna to look at. Now, let's begin by going to verses 3 and 4. We're going to start looking at these sons of Israel one by one, okay? So we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength. Well, sounds good so far, doesn't it? The excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Well, I'm sure Reuben is about so excited because he's the first one up. And Reuben didn't have such a, a good little background. So he's probably thinking, hey, I guess I got away with this and all things are forgotten. We can move on now, right? He's probably pretty excited. Until we get to the fourth verse, he says, unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He went up to my couch is what Israel is saying at that point. So a few things to notice here. Again, he, he's not going to respond. He's not going to place the blessing uh, in the exact birth order. Now, in this case, this is the firstborn, but that's not what we're going to continue to see. In fact, there is going to be a process, but it won't necessarily be the birth order. Instead, he addresses the sons of each wife in turn, okay, beginning with Leah. Why? Because Leah was his first wife, wasn't she? That's a place I would like to take a little sidebar, but we can't do that. Then he's going to, to bless and give a prophetic image to the two concubines, okay? Then are going to come the sons of Rachel, Okay, so she will be the last, who, which will be which sons? Joseph and who? Benjamin. Okay, so under normal circumstances, okay, under tradition, you could say, now we've seen this not always happen, but under normal circumstances, Reuben should receive the birth order blessing. He is the firstborn. He should receive the double portion. Instead, it starts out, you know, with, with a compliment in what should have been and what his call could have been, and then it goes right into a rebuke. And Jacob reminds him and basically says that because of what he did, he forfeited his opportunity. In other words, that's why he's contrasting, you were the strength, you were the, this is what should have been. 
And then he goes into verse 4 with this rebuke, okay? In Hebrew, he's saying, Reuben, you boiled over like water. You were like a boiling water pot on, on a stove, meaning that he was undisciplined and lustful. He was an undisciplined man. Water boiling out all over the stove, it's something, someone's not watching it, are they? And that's what he's kind of making that connection, this undisciplined nature he had and this lustful attitude. And because of that, he's disqualified. And if you remember, why, what is this all about? He's disqualified because of his lust for his father's wife. It was Rachel's handmaiden or Rachel's concubine. What was her name? Bilhah, right? That while he was mourning the death of this high school sweetheart, Rachel, right? While he was mourning her death and she died giving childbirth to who? Benjamin. And she was buried in Bethlehem. That's going to be really important for us to look at next week because Jacob... And Israel, who constantly we see this love towards Rachel, yet we're going to read, he's going up to Maccabat, and he's going to Hebron to be buried. He's not being buried with Rachel. I think it's a sign of maturity again on the part of, of, of Israel, but we'll talk about that next week when we get. But what is being talked about here is simply the fact that because he, while, while Jacob was in this mourning over the death of Rachel, Reuben went up, and let me put it real clearly, just so you can get the vernacular of this day. There was sexual intercourse in the Oval Office, okay? That's, that's kind of what you need to know. So that's exactly what took place, and that is exactly why there's this rebuke going on here. And this reminds us, what? This reminds us about our own self-control. This reminds us, what is the application here? You know, we are given the fruit of self-control. It's not something we have to pray to have. It's not something we have to get in a prayer line to get. It's something that when you're born again and the Holy Spirit comes in and fills your spirit man, deposited with the spirit because the spirit is self-control. The spirit is love. The spirit is gentleness. So when you receive the spirit, you receive the attributes of the spirit. And that is absolutely a self-control place. And it gives us self-control over lusts. It gives us self-control over desires and wants and temptations, all those things. You know, the Bible says there's no temptation but that which is common to man. But with every temptation, he'll provide a way of escape. And one of those ways of escape is to tap into the Holy Spirit in you and, 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 and talk you know, Lord, you know, you've given me the fruit of self-control. Help me develop that to a place. And, you know, I was talking this morning. That can be anything from what happened here, you know, sexual immorality, sexual fornication, or it can be saying no to the, you know, Krispy Kreme on the countertop. We all have that place where we have to access that self-control, don't we? And guess what? You know, you might think, well, what's the big deal about a Krispy Kreme? Well, if you eat enough of them, you could disqualify yourself from your calling because you might get taken out of the world earlier than you should have been. Amen? Yes. So just don't tell Krispy Kreme we're talking about them because they probably won't be our sponsors anymore if they knew that. But anyway, it's very interesting that the disqualification came and, and really Reuben threw it away. And, and I just wonder... How many, how many of us were those in the church and beyond us 
you know, for a momentary pleasure, we give up a lifetime destiny. And in some cases, it can be that. Some things we can fall into, there can be restoration, and it might take a little trip around the mountain a couple times, and God will put you back on the road of where he had you be. Some things not the case, and we're seeing this here. Because God forgives us, and you can go into your prayer closet and, say, and then confess John 1.19, that you know, if I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness, but he doesn't have to take the consequences away. And here, this is what happened in this scenario. And, and know this too. I think this is important for us to realize too. Such a simple message, but do we, do we, are we always looking for something deeper that we miss the simplicity of the basic gospel? And that's this. You know, this, this thing happened 40 years ago. You know, what I want to say is nothing we do is hidden. Everything will come into the light. It's either going to come into the light here. You know, you know the phrase, be sure your sin will find you out. It could come here. If it doesn't come here, we are all going to stand before Jesus Christ someday, and we're going to give an account for our lives. I don't quite know what that looks like. I don't know that, you know, everyone's going to sit at attention and, and you know, hear Patty's sin displayed all over. I mean, he, first of all, Jesus is never going to do that because we're never going to give an account for our sins. Our sins have been forgiven. So the place where sins are accounted for is the white throne judgment because they, that is the place for sinners that are going to stand before God and they're going to be sentenced to eternity of suffering. But for a Christian, we don't, we're not going to stand before Jesus for our sins, but we will stand before him for our works. And I believe with my whole heart that the Bible tells us in Revelation that, you know, and this is the part when, when the church is in heaven, that part of the book, and he says, and he will wipe every tear from their eye. You know, and yet the Bible says there are no tears in heaven. So how do we, how does he wipe a tear if there are no tears? I believe this could be one of those places that when we stand before the Bama seat of Christ and we give an account for the giftings he's given us, what we did with them, what we didn't do with them, or what we disqualified ourselves in because we didn't have enough self-control to tap into, to know how to, to utilize that, you know, and, and really get victory. That could be the thing when we come to realize what, what could have been. But, you know, it'll only be for a second, and maybe that's what it is when he wipes every tear. It could be that. I don't know if it's he'll wipe a tear because we'll, the Bible says, we'll, we'll, we'll know each other as we've been known. Now, there won't be marriages and there won't be family as sisters, brothers, cousins, and all that. But we're going to know each other there. And so is it the realization who isn't there that we thought might be there? Either way, my point for this is Reuben, Reuben had a, a, a just a, a spot in, in his birth order that he should have received. But because he didn't control his, his appetites. He didn't control anything in his appetite. It disqualified him. And I know we don't all like to hear that because we just want to think God's just gracious and he just looks away, and he does. But that doesn't mean you can continue down your calling road. You can be disqualified for that, okay? So we can't be naive and think that we are not going to be accountable. Everything will be shown in the light. Everything. Amen? Let's look at the prophetic end of this. The rebuke that he says to him certainly reflects decisions he's made. We just talked about that. And it's a shame because he was a man of great promise 
uh, that really amounted to nothing. The man himself really amounted to not what God wanted him to have. Likewise, the tribe of Reuben never really had any strong significance in Israel's history. There was no judges that came from the loins of Reuben. There were no leaders. There were no prophets. There just was nothing that really significantly brought Israel to a higher place. In fact, Reuben's tribe was the first tribe to be taken into captivity when Assyria came in and took over Israel. Sad. You know, it's so sad. And yet we're sad thinking this, but like, what about our lives? What are we allowing our appetites to rob us of our blessings in? Because again, a moment of, of, of lustful appetite, and lust doesn't necessarily mean sexual sin. We can have lust for lots of things, material things, relational things, all kinds of things. Putting God in a second place rather than other things. And we can make those decisions at the expense of lifetime blessings. So these are things that are sad as we read them, but they're also sad for us to consider too. In fact, Reuben's tribe was so insignificant in the overall picture prophetically of Israel that Moses said this prayer in Deuteronomy reflecting them. Moses said, this is about the, the tribe of Reuben. Let the tribe of Reuben live in and not die out, though they are few in number. Amazing what could have been and what ended up being. So it also reflects Israel's early days, okay? Because some of these, some of these sons, they have their own, again, individual blessing and, and, and um, prophetic edge to the tribe. But also remember that the order that these are being done in, in some cases, show us Israel's story. And just as Reuben committed sexual fornication, okay, he, the same thing happened in Israel. They came out of Egypt, they crossed over the Red Sea, and they committed spiritual fornication. Not sexual, but spiritual. Well, my, 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 Pastor Deb, how did that happen? That happened when Moses went up to the mountain to get the first set of commandments. And when he came back down, he came down to the hearing of dancing and yelling and carrying on and all kinds of things. And there was this dissertation with Aaron about what's going on down here because Aaron was supposed to keep an eye on things. And here, while he was up there really receiving the constitution for Israel... They were down there making an adulterous calf, right? They built the golden calf while he was up there. And we know the story. Moses broke them, and that's why there had to be a second set. But what I'm saying to you is this is a picture of Israel's history, just like it is Reuben's history. The first place we see that not only was there sexual fornication for Reuben, there was spiritual fornication in, in the place of Israel. So the early days of Reuben were disappointing and so were the early days of Israel. They were disappointing. Okay, let's go to verses 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter into their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. And in their self-will, make sure you see that word, self-will, because self-will is pride. In their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. 
different translations say a little different about that hamstring and ox. We'll look at that. But here we see Jacob speaking of Leah's second and third son. We're still on Leah, right? Because that was the first marriage. And we're looking at Simeon and Levi. These guys are connected by their misdeeds in Shechem. So you're going to have to go back to some, some earlier Bible studies that we, we studied together. Their misdeeds in Shechem. You remember the story? I'll remind you. Dinah was raped in Shechem by Shechem. It was in chapter 34 that we looked at that. So Simeon and Levi hatch up this idea and they get them to be circumcised, okay? And, and while they're in their healing phase of that circumcision, they come in and massacre them all, okay? And that's what he's talking about. And what they said was they were defending Dinah's honor, but Jacob said their deeds were evil and full of anger. Evil and full of anger. And they murdered the men, the women, all that. They murdered them all. And they made their animals lame. Here it says here they hamstrung an ox. In some other translations it says they made their animals lame. How did they do that? They cut the tendons off of the animals so they were useless to nobody. It's interesting that Jacob actually talks about animals this way. Isn't that so interesting that not just the people, but he makes, makes mention too of animals. And, and I just want to say that Jacob says they were self-willed. You know, when you're self-willed, you're likely to, to be angry. You, or you can be provoked easy into anger. When you're self-willed, you're likely to become prideful in some things. Want your own way. Insist that your own way is the right way. Self-willed is another way of saying prideful, at least in my vocabulary. And I think that's what he's saying. They relied on themselves. And Jacob says, because you were self-willed, your seed, you will be scattered. Can I say to you that neither Simeon or Levi received land on their own? Instead, they lived in the land of other tribes. Okay? They lived in the land of other tribes. And Israel was scattered two times. Again, we're looking at Israel's history along with the tribe prophecy and the individual prophecy. And, and the Israel history is that not only were their seeds scattered and they lived in other tribes, but Israel was scattered twice, once in Assyria and once with Babylon. You remember that as we look at history, right? But I want to just say something about Levi here because I think this gives us a little insight into the heart of God. So as it's right here standing, this is, this is the prophecy that has been, that's been spoken. And the truth is, Levi nor um, Reuben or Simeon had their own land. But Levi didn't have their own land for a more specific reason than Simeon. Levi didn't have their own land because of this. In the narrative of um, the whole scenario of Moses coming down and the golden calf being built... And when Moses saw it, he broke both tablets. You remember that story, right? And then it says this in, in verse 25 of chapter 32. It says, now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and he said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all of the sons of Levi... All of the sons of Levi gathered themselves together with him. That tells me 
that there was repentance. That tells me there was repentance because what I want to read to you out of this is because even though they didn't receive any of these things, they were a lot like Jesus in the sense that they did not enter into spiritual fornication, okay? They, they took that stand, and I believe because they took that stand, I believe that's the core reason that God blessed them because, as you know, the tribe of Levi is the priesthood of Israel, and although that doesn't make this prophecy untrue, because part of Levi's destiny as a tribe was they would be the priesthood, but they would never have land of their own. Yet they would have these cities of refuge that they, they kind of managed, but they still weren't theirs. They didn't occupy them. But God, in their repentant state, he and what they did here, that they would not, they would not stand for, for idolatry, that God, that the Lord blessed them through that. Are you with me? Okay, so Levi stood on the Lord's side against idolatry, and God blessed them and made them Israel's priesthood. Okay? Let's go to verses 8 through 12, and we're going to look for, <clears throat> this is one we could have spent a whole week on. Judah, take note to some of the wording here. You are he whom your brother shall, what? Praise, because Judah means praise, doesn't it? Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children will bow down before you. So we, that whole eighth verse gives us a, 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 an understanding of leadership. There's leadership here, okay? Because others are bowing down, okay? Verse 9, we're going to see another aspect of Judah and their prophecy. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion who shall rise against him. This is the first understanding of what we could see as the lion of the tribe of Judah, isn't it? We're, we're seeing that phraseology being used. Let's continue to the next verse. The scepter. So now we're not only looking at leadership we're not only looking at, at him being called this lion, but now we're going to see lordship because it says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. This is, this is important when we see the history of Israel. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Well, who in the world is Shiloh? Is it the Neil Diamond song, Shiloh, when I was young? I used to call your name. Is it, was it, you think it's him? No. Until Shiloh comes. We've we got to figure out who Shiloh is because that's going to give us a whole understanding of the rest of this verse. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. So whoever the Shiloh, when he comes, the scepter is not going to be passed down to any more kings in Israel. And, they, and he's going to manage the obedience of the people. So this is lordship, isn't it? Absolute lordship. Where worse are we at? Let's go to 11 and 12. Binding his donkey. This is Shiloh we're talking about. Are you getting a picture of who Shiloh might be? Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine. Speaking blood. We see in Isaiah some of the phraseology here about garments from Basra washed in wine. And his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Again, right here, one week, we could have spent on this whole dissertation with Judah, but let's look at what we have, the few things I pulled out. 
I'm sure the rest, <laughs> I'm sure as, as Judah stood there, remember that they're all gathered around Jacob's bed, and he's pronouncing not such good news up to this point. Jude is probably like trying to inch his way back out because he didn't have such a good track record either, did he? So he's wondering what in the world good can Israel say to him. But then when, Jake, when, when Judah comes, Judah along with Joseph's blessing is the longest of any of the rest. Joseph's being the longest. And this speaks of Messiah. This speaks of Messiah. Verse 8, Jacob awards prominence over his brothers. The closest the sons got to another patriarch was this leader of Judah. That's the closest they got to the birthright being passed on. It wasn't the birthright. It was the, it was the seed, the seed birth, wasn't it? Because it was the, out of his loins that Messiah was going to come. In this case, Judah, the entire tribe received prominence within the family because they'll all be blessed by this. Okay, The tribe of Judah would see the other tribes bowing down, a prophecy of not just the king of kings where every knee would bow, but a prophecy of the kings that would come out of the loins of Judah, the natural kings in the land of Israel. So it's also you know, talking about that too. So again, it's leadership. We're seeing that there's a kingly anointing, a kingly uh, uh, vernacular being placed on this tribe. There had to be because ultimately the king of kings was going to come out of this, okay? And while they came out of some others, Judah really produced most of the good kings in Israel, okay? So when we think about that, I want to take us to something. Again, this is why... It would have been really awesome if we could have spent a few weeks on this because I would have liked to have taken you all over the Bible to, to, to show you the different narratives where these are realistic things that took place or didn't take place in the land lottage and where they were. Joshua talks a lot about that. But let me just give you one here as we look at Judah. The sin of Israel in 1 Samuel wasn't the desire for a king. You remember the scenario. They started seeing that, that all the nations that surrounded them had kings. And they started grumbling and moaning and complaining to God that they wanted a king. Now, we understand a couple things. God wanted to be their ultimate king. Jehovah wanted to be their ultimate king. But not just that. By reading this prophecy, we also know that God had a plan for them to have a king. But it needed to be his choice. And it needed to be his choice and his time. And it took 640 years from the time they got the king they asked for until God got the king he asked for. So they were way ahead of their time, weren't they, in what they were asking for. But the sin wasn't the desire for a king. They asked for the wrong reasons, and they asked too, too soon. So God gave them what they asked for. He gave them a king. And that king's name is who? Saul. Was Saul from the tribe of, of Judah? No. What tribe was Saul from? Benjamin. Well, that's not what, what we just read here, is it? Now, the kings were going to come, and their very first king was out of the Benjamin tribe. His name was Saul, and what did Saul do? Saul reflected their desires with a lot of outward appearance. He was full of himself. He was not yielded to God. In fact, he put himself in a place of a priest, and that really was the end of the road for you know, his little, little time there. It cost the nation dearly. It cost the nation dearly. They were out of God's timing. They were self-willed. They wanted to do this all their way. Eventually, because we know that God gets his way, doesn't he? Eventually, God brought the king of Judah, just as he prophesied here, that this king would come from Judah. But again, it was David, 
and it had to come out of the tribe of Judah because ultimately Messiah was going to come out of the seed of David. He would rise up as a, as a plant, the word says, from the seed of David. But it was 640 years later, a long, long time. Of course, Jacob's prophecy speaks of an eventual king of Judah, the Messiah. I mean, that's ultimately what this narrative is, is, is leading us to understand, okay? Verse 9 says that Judah is compared to a lion. First time we see that comparison. Like a lion, Judah will have power, authority, and master over his adversities or his adversaries. Verse 10 says the scepter, in other words, the lordship, will not depart from Judah, meaning the tribe will reign over Israel without end, okay? Now, before we go past here, you might say, well, this doesn't seem fair because Reuben, you know, he, he got the bad end of this deal. He did a few things bad, and he got called on it. So what about Judah? I mean, Judah didn't have such a great track record either. You, re you remember the Tamar story, okay? You remember that. And some other things. He didn't run his household well whatsoever. But I have to tell you, his shining moment, just like the, the Levi, when he took the Lord's side at Mount Sinai, Judah's shining moment was when it came time and Joseph was insisting that Benjamin be brought to Egypt. And you remember the scuffle that took place and oh hell, and he was holding one back and all these. But eventually Judah was the one who stood up with humility to Jacob and said, you know, I'm going to take full responsibility. And if, he, if something happens to him, kill me. So he, he obviously came to a place of maturity, a place of repentance, and not just that, but Judah stood in the place of Christ as a sacrifice for someone else. Do you see that? And there was, there was definitely true repentance there as we can say it. The staff not departing from his feet is a picture of, of the seat of judgment, which we just talked about. Jesus is going to stand at two seats. He's going to sit at the white throne judgment. You don't want to be in that line. The white throne judgment is for sinners, and they're going to give an account for their sin, and they're going to be... See, what we need to understand is it's not like, do I go to heaven or not? No, you're going to some place of eternity. There is an eternity. It's the one you choose from. It's not either go to heaven or, you know, you just are annihilated in the ground. We are going to spend eternity in one of these two places. And, of course, that, that seeding of Christ gives us that. Now, let's, again, return to verse 10. You put verse 10 up. The scepter shall not report from, depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Shiloh, that word Shiloh. The Septuagint, which we've talked about before, and even the Dead Sea Scrolls say the tribe of Judah will rule until the one whose right it is comes and takes up the throne. That, that, that's the Septuagint's reflection on this. Not just the way this is worded, but the way he's saying it is that this will happen until the one who rightly deserves it takes up his rule. Okay, So let, let's take a little further. Until Shiloh comes... The root word for Shiloh, you know, many Hebrew words have a root that the words build upon. Until Shiloh comes, comes from the root word shalom. Shiloh, the root word is shalom. What does shalom mean? Peace. So we get a, we get a little bit of a, of a view of who this might be because we, we serve somebody who's called the prince of shalom or the prince of Shiloh because that's, that, that's, that's the the root of the word. 
So clearly, this is so clearly Messiah. This is Messiah Yeshua. Because Yeshua is called the Prince of Shalom, which is Shiloh, right? We see that. So this is all about Messiah's rule. This is a picture of him coming. And the tribe of Judah will hold the rule over Israel from generation to generation. Once Messiah comes, there will be no more secession of rule. He will hold it forever. The Lord sent me here to tell you there is not going to be another king over Israel because the king of kings has landed. Shiloh has come. Okay? That's exactly what we see here. So, let me just give you a little interesting story here that I, I saw in a couple places. So, so in the day, going back a couple, you know, thousand years ago, apparently, and, and, and this would make sense to us because we read the Torah every Friday night. So, these guys, they had a Torah. And they know what this prophecy is. They know what this is. Jacob is their, the father of their nation. So they know what this, and, and it's been said that some of the rabbis and scribes and whatnot of that time, they, they knew that there would be the scepter. If the scepter was removed, that that would mean Messiah would have had to come because we just read that. Well, it turns out that back in that day that the Romans made a rule over the Jews and said, you cannot pronounce capital judgment on anybody anymore. So they, they saw that as a scepter being removed from them. And the story goes that there were rabbis that were running up and down the streets in Jerusalem, weeping and crying, saying the word of God has, 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 has not come to pass. It's not fulfilled. It's, something's wrong. And the reason is because of this verse. Because the verse says that that won't happen until Shiloh comes. And there was no Messiah on the board. But many Bible readers who know historical times much more than I do said that when that took place, when that rule was cast down, when that scepter, as the Jews would call it, was taken from them, while Messiah wasn't in his office yet, some say that he was like the 12-year-old who was going. He, he, was, he was here, he just wasn't in his office yet. So what they didn't realize is they didn't see a Messiah like they were expecting to see a Messiah but then again, even when Messiah came into his full ministry, they didn't see him as Messiah, did they? But the point I'm saving to you is the integrity of God's word, that there wasn't a lapse in the word of God, that, that Shiloh was here. He just wasn't activated in his messianic role. It's pretty deep, isn't it? That's, pre that's pretty impressive, I think. So finally, Judah's family will be so prosperous that their donkeys and fowls will be tied to grapevines. So this is, you know, this is a lot of prophecy. Again, we could spend so much time on this. But grapevines are fragile. Have you ever seen a grapevine? They're brittle. They're fragile. Certainly, you're not going to tie a horse to one. Let's walk away with the thing. But, but what we can see here is that they said a donkey can be retained. And we see here the prosperity that God gave this tribe. And they were prosperous. But it also describes... And we, again, we could really have gone through some scripture here. Lots of Bible scholars believe this is a, a preview or prophetic view of Palm Sunday with the donkey and the wine and the grapevine and all those kind of things. Amen? So Judah, long, long story put, Judah would indeed be a blessed tribe. They'd be blessed spiritually, and they'd be blessed in every single way. And wouldn't that make sense, since they're the representation of Messiah, that they would be an embodiment of his fullness? Amen? 
Let's read verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. This is another one we could have did a little time with. But Zebulun, Zebulun's airy was assigned in Joshua. And interesting enough, if you go to the book of Joshua and you see all the tribes' assignments of their geographical land, okay, it does not border the sea, as this prophecy said. So again, we don't just say, oh, well, the word of God's not true. No, we dig a little deeper, okay, because sometimes it's not evident the first place you see. And as it turns out, Ezekiel 48 describes the tribe's location during the millennium kingdom. And it turns out, guess what? That Zebulun does have territory on the sea at that time. Simply put, you know, we could spend some time there, but it's, it's a fact that that's exactly what happened. And again, these prophecies are not just individuals, they're not only tribal, but they're Israel's history. So we need to understand something here as we remember this, that these prophecies concern Jacob's at the end of the days, and we're into the millennial reign now. We're looking at some of these things coming to fruition in the kingdom day. And you know what that reminds me? And I can't resist not saying it every chance I get to to put the Bible and deposit it into your heart and really put it on the road. God is not through with the Jew. He's still making sure that what he said in Genesis is going to happen even in the kingdom time frame that we're talking about. Okay? Long, we haven't even seen that yet. Let's look at verses 14 to 15. We're going to look at Essachar right now. Essachar is a strong donkey. I don't know about you, but I would not like my father to call me a strong donkey. Just, just saying, you know. Um, lying down between two burdens. He saw the rest was good. See, that this is, this is important for you to see. I see a mark of laziness here, okay? He saw rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear the burden and became a band of slaves, Wow, that's pretty interesting. He was strong. He was given over to manual service and labor, but he was lazy. That tribe was lazy. In verse 15, we see Jacob say that they, they saw the good of the land, but they sought nothing more. They'd never advanced anything, and they ended up, believe it or not, working for others, including the Canaanites. Again, this prophetic thing coming to pass once again. Verses 16 to 18. Dan shall judge his people. In fact, you need to know before we go any further, the word Dan means judge. And his tribe had judges that came from them, okay? As one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord, I want you to just really pay attention to this particular guy because this is really interesting. So this tribe will produce judges, okay? And this tribe produced Samson, produced other judges, but he's one of the most prominent that we know of and talk about. But Dan was also one of the first tribes to practice idolatry, which is where we see this viper vernacular and biting at the horse's heel. He was the first tribe to practice idolatry. Dan began the rebellion that eventually split Israel up. He was part of that. You know, before we go any further, I want to say, do you know Satan has to use a person? Satan can't do his work without somebody signing up for the job. I mean, he just doesn't come up in a red suit and horns and say, yeah, uh-uh, 
right? We would know who he is. Now, just like the Lord does his work through us, same thing. Satan doesn't get his mission done without people. And, you know, Paul, Paul called that, someday we'll go into that, and I'll really show you the scripture on it, but Paul talked about this thorn in the flesh, that he asked the Lord for it to be released, you know, thrice, three times, and would the Lord say, my grace is sufficient for you, right? You remember that. Well, the church has that blindness, and he can't write, and he's got a limp, and there's all kinds of physical, they just decided it has to be a physical ailment, and that's why God doesn't heal everybody, because look at poor Paul. But the truth of the matter is, when you look at the word thorn, and you take that back to its place of first mention, and we see that in the Torah, that it relates thorns to people. Amen. And then we look at the life of Saul, and we, it all falls in place. People were his biggest problem. He even couldn't get along with the disciples for a while. They rejected him. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned. He was almost stoned to death. I would say he had the thorn of people. Amen? And so as we're even looking at this, I think it's just so amazing because the enemy, as we're looking at this, that, you know, he caused this division. He entered into adultery, uh, not adultery, idolatry. So what I'm saying to you is let's not sign up to do Satan's work, okay? Because he has to have somebody do it for him. And it can be as simple as something we say. It can be an attitude. It can be lots of things. But Realize, realize that, that he has to use a person. He needs a vessel. And that's why he's deceptive. Because see, right away when he uses the person, we come against the person. We get upset at the person. We get angry at the person. And all along behind the tapestry is Lucifer killing, stealing, and destroying. Amen? And this is what we see in this tribe. He split, he eventually split Israel and his rebellion. But Jacob alludes to these outcomes when he says Dan is a serpent on the way to the nation. Now, I want to just, I, I wish I had had time for this because this is interesting to me. I'm going to actually do this myself on my own time. But so many, so many, and when we did the book of Revelation, I did not come across this, but there are so many very smart Bible teachers who believe that the Antichrist is going to be somehow relational to the tribe of Dan. That it, there's going to be some insurgence out of that, which would be the explanation of all this viper serpent on the way. Serpent. I mean, as soon as we hear serpent, we go right to Genesis, the beginning, and we look at that, don't we? So I'm not sure of that because I didn't have really time to really dig into it and look at the scriptures, but that is a very common conception amongst Bible teachers. It's interesting also to note, with all this in mind, Dan is not listed amongst the listing of the tribes in Revelation 7. Now, I've always heard, I've always thought that the reason for that was because he entered into idolatry. And so that was kind of like uh, the punishment, you know, whether he was dis removed from that listing. However, I came across something I think is even more telling that just might give us a little expanded mind to think about. Dan is not listed amongst Revelation 7. Let me remind you what that is. Revelation 7 is the 144,000 wild for Jesus Jews that are out getting the last remnant of this world into the kingdom. Okay, important for us to know. Let me just say this. 
they're the real Jehovah Witnesses. Okay? Yeah. Yes. So 144,000, and we see all the tribes listed, and Dan is not listed. Again, you were probably taught, I've been taught, I assume, well, because of this idolatry thing that he entered into, they're not in there. But I think there's something more to this. I wonder if it had more to do with Dan's prophecy that we're reading here than it had to do with God's judgment because of this scripture. John 12, 47 says this. If anyone hears my words, anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So, so what we're seeing here is that, let me explain it to you, that since Dan's name means to judge, that's what he produced, judges. Perhaps he's left out of the 144,000 since those men listed were selected to consider, continue the saving work that was taking place in the end days. And because his name means judge, it's not time for judgment. They're still in the evangelistic saving time. And again, we see at the end that the Lord says something about uh, salvation. That I, you know, I, I hear, I cried out for your salvation. Because this is looking at tribulation time. I'm not saying, I just think it's an interesting thought to consider. We don't really know for sure why he's not listed. I'm sure there are people smarter than me who could give you more scripture on that, but I do think it's very interesting to consider that since he was a judge and it's not time for judgment, it could be just that simple integrity of the word of God coming against from book to book and Bible verse to Bible verse. Amazing, isn't it? I mean, what's amazing to me is that if that's the case, that God would go through that much integrity to keep his word pure and flawless and perfect. Wow. <clears throat> okay, we're going to read 19 through 21. It's going to include a few of them. We're getting there. Almost finished. Gad, a troop shall trample upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. That means he's got the, ta the, the Krispy Kreme donut place up in heaven. He provides all that for the kids. I'm on Krispy Kremes tonight. I think I need to get a cream donut. I'm just saying. Naphtali is a deer let loose who uses beautiful words. <clears throat> so Jacob has very little to say about Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. You can just see it's a sentence. So that's all I'm going to really give you to. Gad was vulnerable to raids. Gad's placement in, the, in Joshua, where he was, they were excellent warriors and they defended Israel well, but because of their location, they were subject to tribal and na nation, nationalities of people coming in, okay? But they were well-equipped because they were good warriors. Asher, given some of the best land, very fertile ground, his tribe, because of that land, simply, back to the matter, produced really delicacies and rich foods. That's all there really is to say. Nephtali, Jacob says that the tribe would move like one set loose. And his territory was very mountainous as we look at that and come to understand the, the demographics of where, where they lived. They moved like deer and they were also gifted warriors. Not too much more to say here. Next we move to Joseph. It's going to be verses 22 to 26. We have Benjamin to go and then we are finished. Okay. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, hated him. But he, 
But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Verse 25. By the God of your father who shall help you, and by the Almighty you shall bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie beneath, blessings of the breasts of the womb. And the last verse. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of whom has separated from his brothers. I think all this simply means that he was richly blessed. He was richly blessed because, first of all, his two sons were adopted into Israel's sons and given, essentially, that double blessing. Joseph himself received Shechem. We talked about that last time. And Joseph's tribe, which is now two tribes, Okay, Joseph's tribe ends up being two tribes. So in essence, he got the double portion of Manasseh and Ephraim. And the rest of the, the, the verse gives us two things to understand, simply put. Even though it's the longest narrative of blessing, it simply all points to comparing Joseph to Messiah. Because remember, we have seen that and tracked that and had that parallel all along. But also, it gives us an understanding of God's blessing back to Joseph because he was blessed in persecution. He was blessed in betrayal. He was blessed in all the things he was lied about, all the things that happened to him in his lifetime. I think we're seeing the, the law of reaping and sowing here because the word says, do not be mocked, do not be kidded, that God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. And in this case, Joseph had a long, long time of sowing and sowing and sowing and, and forgiving and, and moving on and, and taking care of his brothers and all those things that went on with him, he still acted godly. And now we see the end for him being so much greater than everything he ever went through. And I think that's something we need to keep in mind. Yeah, you know, we're going to suffer a little bit with some things. Our flesh is going to suffer because this flesh is not redeemed. We've got to put our flesh under the redemptive aspect of who we are. If we let our flesh rule us, we will never be come into the full destiny and purpose and anointing that God wants us to have. Joseph did so well with this. He was true through and through. And we're going to see next week when we close out in chapter 50, that famous scripture that says, you know what, guys? It's okay. Because what you meant for harm, God meant for good. And that's what we see in this verse, the goodness of God just overtaking him and blessing him. And, you know, I think there's a lesson for us in all that. Sometimes we just need to zip our lip and just dig into the word of God and stand because we're going to go through some trials and tribulations and some misunderstandings. I hate misunderstandings. Don't you? I mean, you just want to make everything right and pure and, and, and true. And just sometimes, you know, again, Satan uses people. He just does. Like sometimes they don't want to make things right. You can try all you want, but if somebody doesn't want to be your friend or doesn't want to, they want to be a thorn in your side, that's what they're going to be. And we got to be like Joseph and just realize what's meant for harm here, God's going to turn it to good someday. It's all for our good. It's all for our character building. Amen? And then finally, Benjamin, verses 27 through 28. Benjamin, a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. 
in that vernacular, the first time we see that listed that way. And this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Benny is told that he's going to be a warring tribe and successful. So successful will he be that he will divide the spoils with his brothers. So he was successful. That tribe certainly was. In fact, the tribe produced many wars that had a warlike nature. Among that tribe, speaking of warlike nature and warriors, listen to the list of people who came out of that tribe. Saul. Okay, Saul was a Benjaminite born. We see that in his listing of his genealogy. Jonathan came out of that tribe. Mordecai came out of the tribe of Benjamin. Esther and, of course, Paul. Not just that, but how interesting is this, that when we look at the land disbursement in the book of Joshua, Jerusalem, Jerusalem falls into Benjamin's territory. So it's a, it's a, a lot here, and I think we can end by saying as we look at that list between Saul and Paul and Esther and Mordecai, warriors can be powerful ministers or they can be great disappointments, can't they? Again, I think we should end where we started. It all has to do with yielding to the Lord. It all has to do with, with momentary pleasures that can rob lifetime plans God has for us, lifetime blessings, and certainly we see that as we compare Saul of Tarshish, who yielded very fully. And then we see Saul, who was very yielded to himself. Amen. Why don't we stand? So, Lord, as we depart now, such a full chapter, such a, an amazing historical line to go through and and very scholastic, uh, I just thank you for, for your wonderful sheep that just stayed on course here. And uh, Lord, just, just not a lot for us to walk away with that is, it's so scholastic. But yet, Lord, it helps us to really see that you have a plan for all of our lives. It is true what Jeremiah said, I know the plans I have for you, saith the Lord. Plans to bless you, plans to prosper you plans to give you a hope and a future and not to harm you. Lord, help us not to be the ones that harm ourselves because we know you have a good plan, one that is just beyond our imagination. Help us to not fall into those traps where we react in anger as we've, we've learned tonight, when we react in, in, in fleshly ways that can really bring us into a state where, you know, we're disqualified for areas that you want us qualified in. Everyone in your church is qualified to be a winner. Help us to run that race, to throw up every hindrance and every sin and every yoke that would keep us held back so that we can achieve and take hold of the final promise you have for us. And the church said, amen. amen. Have a wonderful week.